Uh, before I get started, I want to claim, as I try to do every time, uh, Jesus has promised to us that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we will be his witnesses from here to the end of the earth. That's true even in uh, our gathering here, as it would be in our going out from here. Um, thought I'd, uh, since it is Advent season, I'd read uh, a poem related to that, and this is um, Miho O'Shiel's Annunciation. The day the angel Gabriel was sent, although he must have known she would consent, he was aware he came out of the blue. Rejoice, you gracious one, the Lord's with you. Yes, Mary was confused and wondered why this greeting pondered what it must imply, that he had given her this accolade, the angel said to her, be not afraid. For Mary, you are God's own favored one, and now you will conceive and bear a son. Who will be Jesus, son of the Most High, whose kingdom has no end? She asks, since I am still a virgin, how can this be? How could this ever come about for me? He tells her what the one on high will do. The Spirit's power will overshadow you. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Be it with me according to your word. Merry Christmas. So, um, this Advent series we are doing this year is is taking a closer look at some of the lesser known prophecies about Jesus. Um, There's always ones, and some of them have been read uh, for their Advent readings. Some of them are always... Uh, the ones we go to forward, you know, first. But uh, the ones, some of the ones that we're picking this year or picked this year were kind of not as known. Last week, Buzzy started off with the star prophecy of Balaam from Numbers 24. Incidentally, as a follow-up on his sermon, uh, I suggest you look at a video about this particular moment in Numbers 24. It's on a channel called Expedition Bible on YouTube. And the host's name is Joel Kramer. And he lives uh, in the Middle East and travels around quite a bit doing videos on the archaeological and physical evidences uh, for the Bible. The one he does on Numbers 24, the Star Prophecy, is pretty cool, where he travels to the uh, actual mountains from which Balaam attempted to issue his three curses uh, at the the asking of Balak. But he actually did the blessings. You know, did you know that there were three mountains? And he got closer and closer with each one. And Kramer visits everyone and he points it out and he has maps and he shows you this is where Israel was camped. And it's really well done. It's a cool video and he describes the sequence from numbers and it, he takes you to the various sites. Um, his, uh, his channel has become one of uh, my and Sarah's favorites. Uh, we're anxious to... You know, when he posts a new one, we want to watch it. His latest one is actually on the city of Nineveh, uh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which kind of has an indirect connection with today's uh, prophecy from Jeremiah. But this morning we're looking at these two verses in Jeremiah. These brief lines carry a lot of impact. I wish I could take the time to go into more of what these few lines say, but for the sake of time, I want to look at the three things Related to these verses. There's three things are. What can we learn from the verses context? 
Uh, what can we learn from their content? And, or uh, what is their content exactly about? So context, content, and then it's completion. How is God's completion found in these verses? So context, content, and completion. For context, let me uh, account, uh, recount a brief history that brings uh, us to where we are in Jeremiah at this point. Uh, in the 10th century B.C., Solomon was king of Israel when the Israelite nation was at its zenith. Solomon's father, David, a man after God's own heart, had been anointed king of Israel, and after fleeing and contending with King Saul, uh, who, while Samuel was the prophet of Israel, he, Saul, rejected the Lord. And we've read the stories, I'm sure you have, of David fleeing and actually serving at times and then fleeing. Saul, and being anointed by Samuel, that he would be king, and he became king, and he defeated Israel's enemies, and he lived in, in relative peace, though he did have moments of poor choice. At, um, at the end of Solomon's life, uh, he, Solomon, turned away from God, and the Lord raised up a series of adversaries who contended with Solomon before he died. It's really interesting to actually name the names of the individuals who contended against Solomon as he turned away from the Lord. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king, and foolishly he led tyrannically over Israel, and it was divided into two kingdoms. It's a really interesting interesting moment. Uh, Rehoboam becomes king, and he seeks advice. He goes first to the elders, the gray hairs, and he asks them, how should I treat the people? By the way, one of the ones who was contending against his father Solomon had fled to Egypt. And when Rehoboam became king, this guy Jeroboam came back to Israel because he was a leader of the people. And he with the people approached Rehoboam and said, now that your father's dead, will you treat us fairly? Well, Rehoboam asked for three days. He sought counsel from the gray hairs, from the elders, from the wise. And they said, you should deal wisely and fairly with the people. Then Rehoboam decided to consult his friends. And they had other advice. They basically said, you think my father was mean? Wait till you experience me. And that divided the kingdom between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This is why... Jeroboam was raised up. He was told by God, by a prophet of God, that he was going to take ten of the tribes and be king there, but leave one for David, for his son Rehoboam. So that had happened. When he died, Jeroboam came king, and he dealt tyrannically. So these ten tribes in the north called the kingdom of Israel were under Jeroboam. Plus there was one tribe and the tribe of Levi, because uh, the temple was in Jerusalem, under Rehoboam uh, as the kingdom of Judah in the south. Then, after several centuries of disobedience uh, in the northern kingdom, the Assyrian Empire defeated and absorbed the kingdom of Israel around 700 B.C. Remember we mentioned earlier about how the city of Nineveh from that video, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And that empire came in and basically defeated and carried off the kingdom of Israel into Assyria. 
But Judah remained relatively faithful for a time, but even they began to turn from God. Which brings us to Jeremiah. He lived about the late sixth and early sixth, or late seventh and early sixth century BC. So, from the uh, low seven hundreds to the high six hundreds is when Jeremiah lived. Now, the prophet of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, is an interesting person, as evidenced in his book. He is often referred to as the weeping prophet. This is why in the, in, when you see art uh, about Jeremiah, with Jeremiah as a subject from over the centuries, he is portrayed with his head down or a sorrowful look on his face. You'll sometimes see kind of his, his hand up at his face. He's always um, looking down. I never asked my mom this, but I think she, we had a, a copy of um, Michelangelo's uh, Jeremiah on the wall in our home and Jeremiah has his hand over his face and he's looking down this is because he was the weeping prophet the title comes from the idea that Jeremiah saw little success in ministry as Judah the kingdom of Judah aspired further and further from God and was eventually conquered by the Babylonians not the Assyrians because the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians and then the Babylonians came on down the road and conquered the kingdom of Judah and actually took away the leaders, uh, and then eventually everyone, and destroyed the temple. Took them away in exile. This is, which is where we begin to see the stories at this point of Nehemiah and Ezra and Jerem, uh, Daniel. You'll see some of those stories fall in about this same time, soon after Jeremiah. At the end of his life, Jeremiah actually fled with some Israelites to Egypt at around 580 B.C., where he died still unsuccessful in calling his fellow Jews to repentance. There's no record as to where Jeremiah died. There is record that he fled to Egypt and uh, probably died in obscurity with his head down (laughs) in sadness. So, but Jeremiah, with the help of his disciple Baruch, who's also mentioned in these books, is the author of not only the book with his name, but is also the author of the book of Lamentations and 1 and 2 Kings. So that's kind of a summary of who Jeremiah was. Even though his ministry wasn't successful, he was successful at keeping a record, keeping faithful to God, even in the face of this. But the book of Jeremiah is not only darkness and gloom. There are quite a number of warm and intimate passages. It's not all sorrow. Like chapter 1, verse 5, this is that... I'm sure you've heard this verse. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. These were God's words to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You see how intimate that is? And loving and warm? I knew you. Then you go even further down to chapter 31, verse 3 through 6. It says, God's saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. And there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, and let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. So, Jeremiah... Isn't I mean, he's the weeping prophet because his ministry didn't get response. But he's, there's also warmth that God has 
in the midst of this darkness. And by these two verses, we're uh, and these two verses we're looking at this morning are of inestimable worth, warmth, and salvation. Imagine what such words sounded like in Jeremiah's ears as he faced his days of little positive response to his declaring God's call to repentance. We should find some solace in this. Um, I don't know about you, but I have not seen a lot of response to the ministry I do. A lot of abundant response. There's some. But compared to Jeremiah, it's probably much better. He would love to have the ministry that I've had, probably. There are at least some people responding. But nevertheless, God still loves us and is warm towards us. Can we not also find a level of solace in this? Things can be difficult, like they were for Jeremiah. And yet, yet God remains the same, extending his grace and love even in the face of the consequences of his righteous judgment that is not followed. God has known us since before we were formed in the womb. Think about that. He has loved us with an everlasting love and wishes for us to enjoy the fruit of good labor. And for our sake, God remains faithful to his promises as we will see in chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. I want to ask, do you believe that? Okay, let's turn to the content now. That's the context. Very cool context. I love getting into these because I just start going on rabbit trails about empires. I've got to look up the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians. and I've got to look them all up. But let me read the verse again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There's a lot here. First, the Lord is, ta- the Lord is talking about a future time. The days are coming where he will raise up. That's a, that's a future thing. What does he raise up? It's not a what, but who? A righteous branch of David. And not just a branch, but a king. It's a capital B. I looked up every uh, translation or interpretation of that word branch, and every one of them is capitalized in every, in the NASB, the NIV, the King King James Version. B, big B branch. So we're talking about a specific person here. This branch, this king, will do a myriad of wonderful things. First, he himself is righteous, so he is a good king. Remember, a righteous branch. God's raising up for David. Isn't it interesting? For David, David's been dead by this point for 300 years. Yet God is doing this for David. I'll get into that a little bit later. Isn't that crazy? Um, Also, uh, this is seen in that uh, what this king will do is that he will deal wisely. So he's not only righteous, but he will deal wisely with situations, with people. He will execute justice as well as his righteousness in his kingdom. And his people, in this case called Judah and Israel, both kingdoms, will be saved and live securely. Imagine that. Both kingdoms at this point uh, either have been wiped out or about to be wiped out. When this is written, I don't know if Judah is completely removed yet, but it's on the verge of it. So even in the face of that, God's saying... 
Judah and Israel will live securely. How is that possible? Israel's gone, Lord. You're about to take Judah down. You've told me. You've actually told me not to pray. Read that in Jeremiah. That's crazy. God's saying, don't pray. <laughs> what? Anyway, so they will, uh, they will be saved and live securely. And he has an interesting title, this branch, this righteous branch of David. The Lord is our righteousness. As, um, as Sarah's uh, version said, the Lord, our righteousness. It could even be interpreted Yahweh, our righteousness. But I'll get that into my last point. When I read these verses in preparation and thought about this point on content, my eye was drawn to this phrase at the beginning where God is raising up a branch. Again, capital B branch for David. And now I wondered how that would sound in Jeremiah's ear or any of the fellow Israelites here. A branch will be raised up for David. David's dead, Lord. So that has to at least show him and them and us God's faithfulness. For David, though long dead, dead dead, like go through his pockets for loose change dead, not mostly dead. He's dead dead. First, I wondered if, I, if some thought about Solomon when they heard this. I will raise up a righteous branch. I wondered if Jeremiah and some of his fellow uh, Israelites thought about Solomon. After all, he was the next branch of David. He was the branch of David as his heir to the throne of Israel. And he did deal wisely for a time. Remember that incident where God comes to him and he's so pleased with Solomon. He says, ask me whatever you will and I'll give it to you. It's like the genie in the lamp, right? I'll give you three wishes. It's God, I will give you whatever you ask. And Solomon says, give me wisdom. And he is even more pleased, God, because of that response. So Solomon was given an abundance of wisdom. So maybe they thought about him. But as we know, and they knew in Jeremiah's time, Solomon's actions, though wise at first, eventually helped lead to the state Jeremiah found himself in with the disobedient Israel. Plus, this branch's kingdom seems to have a tone here of permanence and how it is described by God. And of course, Solomon's kingdom was not permanent. It was altogether opposite of permanent. It split his his very son, his branch, Solomon's branch, split the kingdom because he listened to to unwise people. Then my next thought went right to why God referenced David and being faithful to him by establishing a permanent kingdom in his line. What could this be referring to? I think it is referring to the covenant God made with Daniel in 2 Samuel 7. Reading from verse 12. When you're, this is God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers, in other words, you die. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Hmm. Specific his. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Doesn't that sound like he's kind of referencing Solomon, but then not Solomon, right? He will raise up a temple, right? God did that a lot. There's lots of layers here. He goes on, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took uh, took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. 
David greatly desired to build a house for God, a temple. There's a moment where he asks, says, Nathan, I live in a house of wood. God's living in a tent. I want to build him a temple. And Nathan comes back and says, God says you can't build him a house like that. But God said that he was not going to, that was not going to happen. And in order to console God, or to console David, God, through the prophet Nathan, told David God was going to make a covenant with him. And that that covenant was establishing God, uh, David's throne forever. So even though God said no to David, and his, he had a great desire to build a temple, God still consoled him and said, I will establish your kingdom forever. Now it might be wise to look at what a covenant is, because this is what God was doing with David there in this moment. A covenant is like a severe promise mixed with characteristics of a contract. It usually had two or more parties entering into an agreement of mutual benefit that if the promises were not kept, that the result were repercussions, the most extreme repercussion being death. That was sometimes entered into with covenants. At the time of the Israelites, there existed what was called suzerain treaties or suzerainties. You should look this up. This is very interesting. It had the structure of how uh, involved more powerful kings entering into lesser kings or vassals. And they had formal structures on how they did this. Kings would lay it out who were powerful and then the other kings would, you know, read the agreement and they would basically kind of sign into it as well. I won't go into depth on this except to encourage you to look up suzerainties on your own and see interesting parallels in the way God treats the Israelite people. He is the great king, the greatest king, the king of kings, entering into the covenant with vassal Israelites and even entering into, in some ways, with us. In Hebrew history up to this point, there were four covenants, mainly, that God made with humanity and Israel. There was the one with Noah, the Noahic covenant, and that was God saying, I'm not going to destroy humanity this way anymore. And what sign do we have for that? Rainbow. Rainbow. So when you see a rainbow, that is a reminder to us that God is not going to destroy this world by flood. Thank you. doesn't say if he won't do it another way, but anyway. So, so that's the Noahic covenant. And there was the covenant with Abraham. This is where God commits to choosing one nation or tribe and to bless them and bless the rest of the world through them. This is when started in, in Genesis 12, where God says, I'm going to make a, new, a, a great name. For you, and you will be a blessing to everyone on this earth. And then later on, he reinforces it through other uh, actions. So, God made a covenant with humanity through Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham and the descendants of Abraham and Israel. Then he makes a third one with Moses. This is kind of like you can see the suzerainties in this. He now says, "I'm going to make a covenant with you." And then here here are the laws. Here are what we will agree upon. And that's Moses' covenant. He brings the law to the people of Israel. And he grants his law, which are the terms of this covenant. So obey God's law, and blessings will come. Disobey, and they will not. And finally, we have the Davidic covenant. Which is what is mentioned here in Jeremiah, where God tells David his descendants will establish a kingdom forever. Richard Pratt... uh, professor I, I knew in his paper about prophecy in the 90s wrote this about the relationship between prophets and covenants. So remember, Jeremiah is God's prophet. And he's writing about covenant here. 
He said, Pratt wrote this, The prophets looked to Yahweh's covenants to guide their expectations of what the future held. It has been well established that Old Testament prophets saw themselves operating within the structures of Yahweh's covenants. So even here, Jeremiah, he is like God's ambassador going to the vassal states and saying, you are not following what we've agreed upon. And every prophet saw themselves under the structure of covenants that God was making with the Israelite people. God, uh, prophets were God's emissaries wherever their problems, whenever there were problems with keeping the covenant. So when God says these words to Israel through Jeremiah in chapter 23, he means a covenant level of commitment. The content of these verses is covenant content. You can see here how even this covenant content relates to the context, my first point. Remember when Jeremiah wrote this, remember the history. Israel goes through ups and downs, obeying and mostly disobeying God, and God holds them to his commitment. However, God never disregards his part in the covenant. And what is that part? That brings me to the last point of completion. So we had context, we had content, and now completion. Notice that the last phrase in these two verses says, and this is the name by which you, he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness, or the Lord our righteousness, or Yahweh our righteousness. This seems like an odd way of talking about righteousness. Righteousness is a characteristic that we exercise or grow in. Think about these phrases. God is my salvation. Well, that's an, that's an easy one to think about. God is my salvation. In other words, he's like the Calvary. He is my salvation. He will save me. God is my hope. Again, that is an easier one kind of to understand and use the language grammatically. He is my hope. I put my hope in him. But righteousness seems a little odd because it's, it's a, like an action. And here it is associated with a person. The king from the line of David is given this title. The Lord is our righteousness. So the question arises, how does a person become someone else's righteousness? When they say, the Lord, my righteousness, he is my righteousness. How, that's characteristic. That's got person. How does that person become someone else's righteousness? Perhaps the Apostle Paul can better help us understand how the Lord being our righteousness works. Let me read from Romans 3 for you. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How about Romans 5.18? Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
And finally, Romans 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, Jesus, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is again. God becomes our righteousness, but here Paul is saying Christ makes it possible for us to become the righteousness of God. After I found these verses from Paul and knowing how educated he was in the Jewish Old Testament, it kind of helped me understand why he would write this way about the work of Christ. If he was ruminating, if Paul was ruminating on these phrases like the one in Jeremiah 23, the Lord is our righteousness, it could also be Yahweh our righteousness. And others like it, if Paul was thinking about that and others like it, then we can hear and read about the teachings of Jesus now he, he heard about the reading, uh, the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus said about himself. It's not a far cry to kind of understand what Paul's doing there as he's trying to explain God's righteousness and justification coming to us and then us becoming the righteousness of God. Why? Because of that branch from the line of David. Incidentally, uh, there is a fifth covenant. We talk about it every time... We do communion. Christ's covenant. What is it? It's the new covenant in his blood. And there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Isn't that cool? The wrapping up of all the covenants coming to that phrase, the righteousness of God, the Lord, our righteousness. It's really cool. What's interesting about these verses in Jeremiah 23 is that after starting the writing of the sermon, I realized that these Two verses aren't prophecies at all. This isn't really a prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This isn't a prophecy. This is a promise. This is, God is saying, I am going to do this. He's not predicting, like, it's not going to happen. It might not happen. That's kind of, there's a little bit of that in a prophecy. It's kind of like, it might happen, might not. There are some of those, a lot of those in the Old Testament. Now, this is like, no, I'm going to do this. I promise you, I will do this. I will be your righteousness. Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It says, will do this. You know, it's interesting. Righteousness as a characteristic of a person. Righteousness is not an objective thing. Let me make, make it clear. Righteousness is in a being, an ultimate being, in who all the objectiveness of righteousness and all the subjectiveness of righteousness comes out. It's like Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not something Jesus adheres himself to. Truth is who he is. And this is why... 
it helps us to be able to interact today with people who say, well, that's your truth and that's my truth. Ultimate truth does not waver in the character of God. Now imagine that here today when we talk about my truth and your truth and everybody else's truth. Bring that to bear upon God and his truth. Who's going to win that argument? I believe God's going to win that argument. However, he's a being. So there is a subjectiveness to his truth. There is a subjectiveness to how he'll apply, apply his righteousness. It's not random and it's not without cause. And it's based upon who he is in his character. He is ultimate righteousness. He is ultimate truth. So therefore, we can speak into this world when people talk about, well, my truth is this. Really? Well, it, that's not a truth I've experienced, so obviously we have a conflict of truths. Perhaps we should go to someone who doesn't have any conflict about what the truth is, and that is God. So, what about some application? Have you meditated on how present and active God is with you even today? I mean... You pick that up from these two verses. God has not forgotten, even after 300 years, his promise to David. And he makes sure Jeremiah realizes that. And Jeremiah is to communicate that to Israel, even if they don't want to respond to it. If God is making these kinds of commitments with his people, and we also now are his people, and we have this record of his consistency, of his interactions with his children, how should we respond to that? His faithfulness even today. God isn't giving us prophecies and promises to make us live for him, though these help. He is promising to remain our God because he knows we can't remain his followers of our own power. He becomes our righteousness because we can't become our own righteousness. You might think, or someone else might think, that if he has done this for me, then why would I need to act any differently for him? In other words, if this is actually true, he is my righteousness. He is with me, my power. Then why do I need to change? And I ask in response, is that really a response in gratitude? If that is a response of someone who knows the depth, is that a response of someone who knows the breadth and depth of Jesus of Nazareth? Our righteousness comes out of gratitude that God has given his righteousness to us. So that is why we try to live our lives in accordance to the Sermon on the Mount. It's not because we have the power. We've been granted that power through the salvation by Christ. And in gratitude and our faith, we go forward trusting him, being guided by his spirit. That is good news. That is why we celebrate Advent. It's because that is the start of God being our righteousness. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us this season and these stories, these accounts of your coming and being our salvation, and not just our salvation, Lord, but as Jeremiah says, you are our righteousness. That finds its fulfillment not only in each of the covenants that you gave Israel, but it finds its fulfillment in the new one. 
that you gave 2,000 years ago, and it's still new that your blood was shed for the remission of sins. Help us, guide us by your Spirit to live in gratitude to that. Always being quick to ask forgiveness, but going forward as your follower, as your son, as your daughter, as we seek to make Advent and real in other people's lives, to communicate the reason that you came is for their righteousness. Righteousness that is you and given to them. Thank you, Lord. Lift us all in your name. Amen.